Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we're thrilled to be joined this week by special guest, former player Mary Jo Fernandez. She had a career high ranking of number four in both singles and doubles. She captured seven career singles titles, 17 in doubles as well. And also made the finals of the 1993 French Open. So there's really no better time than now to welcome her to the <laughs> podcast. Mary Jo, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, as we're speaking now, we have action at, at Roland Garros. Just a, a general sense of, of the tournament. Um, what are your thoughts so far, I guess, through one week of play? At least uh, Mike and I have found it, you know, unusual in a sense because the day sessions have like this amazing atmosphere going on. And then we're treated to these new night matches with, with no crowd. What, what have you made of it? Yeah, that's been uh, tough to watch the, the night match, you know, usually what the marquee match with the top players, I think Rafa Djokovic, Roger, Serena have all played uh, that night session with nobody in, in the stands. And I don't know. I mean, I understand the TV rights and, and all that, but, I think it's tough. I, I don't know why they didn't just wait one more year for when fans could, could be there, you know, with the curfew. I, I understand they're they're not allowed to be there past nine, but it was, it was weird to, to watch, you know, these matches, especially when, like you said, during the day, you know, there's pretty good atmosphere. It's not full, but you hear the crowd, they're cheering and the players are getting into it. So yeah, it's been a little odd to, to witness uh, those empty stands, you know, at night. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, fortunately, I, the, the curfew restrictions will be lifted in a couple of days. So I think we'll return to normalcy and uh, just getting to some tennis and starting on the women's side, um, at least for me personally watching, uh, Iga Fiontek has really stood out to me as like the player to beat here. She just looks like a clay core powerhouse. Uh, we saw what she did in Rome, just dismantling Pliskova mm-hmm. in the finals. I'm wondering, do you think this is a player who can not only maybe win this year, but conceivably win the French Open multiple times going forward? I think so. Um, I'm really impressed by her game, by her athleticism. Um, you know, when you think of clay court specialists, not too many come to mind on the women's side. You know, in the past, I remember when Justine Enna played, you say, oh, wow, she's definitely the favorite. You kind of get the feeling with with Sviatek the same the same uh, possibilities because she moves so well on the clay. She's so comfortable sliding. She's very physical on the court and she hits an extremely heavy ball. Like the, she's got a lot of topspin on that forehand. Um, I feel like she, her mentality is is very good for the surface and she's super young. I mean, she just turned 20, so she's got many years ahead of her. Um, I agree with you that she's the one to beat. Um at this year's uh, French Open. Uh, we'll see. I just saw that she won her doubles match uh, with Bethany Maddox-Sands today. They saved seven match points. So uh, she's clearly confident and in, in, the, in the winning mode. But it's going to take a special, I think, a special performance uh, to beat her. But the, there's contenders out there. I've been impressed with uh, Sloan Stevens thus far, with Coco, uh, Coco Golf. I think they've been playing very well. So there's definitely other, other players that can challenge her, but she's a front runner at the moment. One player who's no longer in contention, of course, is Naomi Osaka, and uh, that made headlines earlier this week. Um, you know, she was trying to highlight some mental health issues, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, the blowback was pretty severe from both tennis media and, and a lot of people who were, you know, pretty brave behind their keyboards, I guess, on social media. As a former player and one who, you know, did plenty of press in, in your day, what was your take on her decision and then the, the reaction that sort of followed it? So, you know, first of all, I mean, I hope, you know, she's okay. I hope that, um, you know, she's getting the, the necessary treatment or whatever, you know, she needs at the moment. Like Serena said, it's, you feel like you need to hug her um, for, for what she's going through, but I feel like maybe it wasn't handled the proper way to begin with. Um, You know, I think maybe her team could have done a better job of, bringing it to the French open and saying what she was going through and, and maybe addressing it that way. I think, you know, putting it out on social media, which I know it's the times and it's what the young, you know, players know, you know, how to handle. I think that was tough. I think that put, I think the tournament on defense a little bit and, you know, to their defense, they're probably thinking, well, we can't have everybody not show up you know, to do their press. 
So their reaction, I thought, was very, very harsh uh, when the four Grand Slams came out and and made their their announcement um, of the severity of, of what could happen in the future uh, if she didn't go to press conferences. And then, you know, to hear her come out and, and say that she suffers from depression and that she wasn't going to play the French Open, you know, that was tough. It, it was, you know, for me, it was sad that it, it came down to that. So hopefully everybody learned. Um but the most important thing uh, by far is, you know, that she's okay. And that, you know, during, you know, these tough couple of years now with, you know, with COVID and, and isolation and, and everything that everybody's had to go through that people really do address um, mental health and, and what, you know, not just athletes, but what everybody's going through. So um, we'll see, you know, we'll see going forward, but I just, I just hope that everybody involved just has a little more patience, a little bit more understanding and uh, can communicate. I think that that would be the, the best way to put it, that everybody needs to communicate better. Yeah, well said. And, and you've been on both sides of the equation, of course, as a player and now in the media as well. Uh, I want to look back on a positive note, of course, to your run at the French Open in 1993 mm-hmm. and, and how many special memories must come back to you each time a year when the tournament's going on in Paris. What do you recall from that fortnight, those two weeks and, uh, and you can share with our listeners. Yeah, um, that was a special year for sure. Um, it's ironic because probably the match that stands out the most, you know, in my mind and in my career is the one I came back in the quarterfinals against my good friend, uh, Gabriela Sabatini. I was down 6-1-5-1, uh, saved five match points and ended up winning 10-8 in the third, which was incredible. Um, but you kind of felt like, okay, then it, it should be meant to be, right? Like I, I came back from the brink of defeat and, you know, maybe this is my, my chance to win the French Open. I ended up beating Sanchez Vicario, who was a clay court specialist and won a few French Opens in the semis quite handily. And then I had a lead. I had a lead for the first time against Steffi Graf. Uh, I think I was up 4-2 in the third and then didn't win. So it turned out to be like bittersweet. I had a great run, but then it was really tough not to get to the finish line and, and get that victory. Um, but all in all, just, you know, a great memory, a great experience. Um, it's one of my favorite tournaments. I had some of my best results at the French open. What a tough trifecta. Those three players, my goodness, Sabatini, Sanchez, (laughs) and then Graf. I know, I know. You also had, uh, obviously amazing, memories at the Olympics, two doubles gold medals uh, in Barcelona, Atlanta, bronze as well in 1992. And uh, currently, I I mean, we're hopeful we can see the Olympics this summer in Tokyo, but it's very much up in the air. How important was that stop in your career? How much did you prioritize it, I guess, on the calendar? And uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the idea of of upholding the Olympics and, and tennis players attending for this summer? Yeah, no, the Olympics was definitely a priority uh, for me. And I think for most uh, Americans, for sure, that was a goal to try to, you know, get on that team and, 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 and make the cut. Um, you know, looking back, I just remember feeling very fortunate to be in the sport that we're in because a lot of these other athletes, you know, had those few seconds, whether in a race or in a, you know, swimming competition. Um, I remember, uh, meeting someone in the village that missed the bus to their to their event and couldn't compete and they had been practicing for four years for this one moment so I felt fortunate that tennis you always have next week um you know we have the four big ones in the year and then you still have other big ones uh to follow so that was something that gave me perspective but you know, maybe appreciate that we were a small part of a huge event. You had to pinch yourself just that you were there at the Olympics opening ceremonies day. I'll never forget, uh, especially in 92 in Barcelona, the dream team was there. So that was pretty special. Um, and obviously winning the medals is, was icing on the cake. Uh, had a great partner in Gigi Fernandez, one of the best uh, doubles players to ever play. And it was, it was fun. I mean, Barcelona, we played against um, the Spanish team in the, in the final. I remember the king and queen uh, showed up midway through the match and it turned the match around. We were winning and then all of a sudden we started losing and we were like, oh my gosh, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the crowd? But we found a way and then obviously winning at home was very, very special. 
And of course, it's a, it's the ultimate international event, the Olympics. And uh, we've been talking about our sport, uh, the sport of tennis. Obviously, we're a Canadian tennis podcast and never have we been you know, so excited as a tennis nation than we have been over the past mm-hmm. few years, um, men's and women's side. And yep. uh, just touching on some of our women's players, of course, Bianca Andreescu, a champion at the U.S. Open. Layla Fernandez is sort of emerging right now. And then, of course, we have top players on the men's side. What, what have you made? of of Canada's run in tennis over the past you know handful of years and do you recall ever like taking Canada seriously as a tennis nation during your career yeah no we had a lot of good uh players from Canada when I was playing I grew up playing with Carling Bassett so she was uh she lived in Florida and we played in the juniors a bit um so she was a, a star of the game but nowadays i have to say the young players are coming on strong i mean with dennis and felix on the, on the men's side doing so well and pushing each other um i think that's fantastic obviously you had you know milos roundage for many years now uh, at the top of the game and, and that's been great and the women i mean i love uh bianca andrescu's game i think a little bit like Sviatek, she's a great athlete hits a heavy ball really knows how to how to play different game styles um you know the big question mark is staying healthy uh she just hasn't played enough consistently week in and week out but when she puts it together she's very tough to beat Layla's been impressive too she's not doesn't seem as strong as as Andrescu physically but she's quick and uh she's a smart player on the court so no it's exciting times I think for Canada um, and I think, you know, the more you can compete against each other and push each other, the better it is. That, that's what we've seen in the U.S. through the years as well. When, when you have a group of, of young players uh, coming up at the same time that are doing well and, and pushing each other, you know, each one always thinks, OK, if they can do it, I can do it. We want to ask you about a couple of the all time greats um, whose French Open just came to an end recently. I'll talk about Roger and then let Ben mm-hmm. ask you about Serena um, for Federer kind of. Uh, exceeded his own expectations it mm-hmm. seemed like from the way he was talking impressed making it through those uh, first rounds but ultimately decided you know in an effort to protect his body and his knee preparing mm-hmm. for his ultimate goal in Wimbledon that he decided to step away and uh, withdraw from the event what's your take on his decision here and obviously you've got a close relationship through uh, your husband who's his agent yeah I'm, I'm not asking for any inside info <laughs> unless you want to well, share of course I'm not but there. I'm not there so I don't have a ton of inside information um but I do know that yes he um you know he was looking to see physically how he was gonna hold up really I mean he hasn't played in over a year um he had two knee surgeries he's almost 40 uh he played the one match in Geneva uh, where he lost to Andujar. And, you know, I think he said from the start, you know, my goal is, is to try to get ready for the grass court season. That's when he feels his season will begin. Um, and he wanted to, to see how I think his knee was going to react, how his body was going to react. Um, I didn't get to watch a lot of that match yesterday, uh, but apparently it was physical. It was grueling. Um, and it's the most I think he's played in a while. So, you know, beating Chilich in four, winning this tough one in four, I think for him, you know, he knows his body better than anyone. And, and um, for him, I think it's the right decision to, to take, you know, some time off now and hopefully, you know, be fresh for the grass and hopefully his knee holds up and, and he can play, you know, the full grass court season. But, um, you know, I just love how much he loves to play. I love how, you know, everybody was writing me yesterday saying, oh my gosh, it's so sad. Nobody's watching him. You know, he's almost 40. What is he doing? Like, is he going to just be like, what is this you know what am I doing here and he fought you know he he gave it his all and he found a way and I don't think he he probably played his best but he dug really deep um at this stage in his career that's pretty admirable yeah and that's what he sort of shared I think on his social media after uh competing for the love of the game and and sort of he, he also talked about feeling like he had millions watching you know through their television screens watching that third round match and <laughs> I guess you put it in a wider context talking about a 39 year old coming off of knee surgery making mm-hmm. the round of 16 at the French Open is is truly incredible and we'll we'll see what he can do at Wimbledon uh as for another all-time great on on the women's side Serena Williams this looked like a great opportunity for her at the French Open, the way the draw was kind of breaking down around her, but uh, she falls to uh, Elena Rabakina in straight sets. Do, do you think that quest for number 24 weighs on her mentally? Is that an issue or, or are there just too many great players in the women's game right now? 
Well, the competition is definitely difficult. I also think the French Open was never going to be her best chance at, at winning another major. Um, you know, her serve gets negated quite a bit. She doesn't mm -hmm. get those easy, quick points. Um, you know, and even from the baseline, you know, she's got to really work the point a lot longer. I felt like she got better, though, uh, with each match. I didn't get to see um, the match today uh, where she lost. But I think, she, you know, like Roger, I think she's got her eye, you know, on Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. I think that's where she has her best chance. She's been so close since having her daughter a few years ago. So I still think she can do it. Um, it's not going to be easy, but I, I still think that, you know, she's a champion. And listen, let's give her so much credit that she also is out there, you know, trying to break records, trying to, to keep going at this stage in her career. I mean, she doesn't need to do it. She's done it all. You know, she's going to be the greatest regardless if she wins another Grand Slam or not. And, you know, she's pushing herself and she's determined. And I, I feel like she'll do it. I really do. Um, I felt like she looked fitter uh, during this French Open and was moving pretty well. She did have that strap on her leg. And maybe that was a, a bit of an issue today, um, slowing her down just a bit. But I think she got enough matches. Uh, I'll be curious. She normally doesn't play anything on the grass before Wimbledon. I'll be curious if she decides to enter a tournament and, and try to get a couple matches on the grass. But um, with her serve and her game style, I think Wimbledon is where she's going to be the most, uh, the most dangerous. It's so remarkable to me to see these great athletes like her and Roger who are still going into their late 30s, early 40s now. And I turned 40 last summer and I could get through an hour of rec tennis without something hurting. So it's <laughs> I know, really amazing. And your 40s when everything goes downhill, all the aches and pains come out. So get ready. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for that positive news. Um, <laughs> when I was growing up, uh, I mean, I, I watched your generation. That's what hooked me on tennis. And yet, you know, your crowd sort of, you know, ended their career more late 20s, early 30s, mm -hmm. as I believe you did. Yep. Whoever have imagined going like an extra five ten years or for you I think it was 29 was that you'd given enough to the sport at that point yeah I think the difference is we started so much sooner um you know I started playing play some pro tournaments at 13 I turned pro at 14 uh so 14 15 years you know uh, at your career at you know tennis was pretty good um I had an injury towards the end of my career I had wrist surgery and that I think was a big part of, of me slowing down and, and, and wanting to to start a new chapter in my life. Um, the rehab was getting tough. It was draining and not knowing if you were going to be hundred percent each day. So I think nowadays players are starting a little bit later. Um, the teams are that much more professional and you have, it's funny. I was talking to my sister about it yesterday. They have people taking care of them now, you know, like mm -hmm. people, the physios, the trainers, um, you know, there's so much more involved. I mean, I, barely warmed up before my match and I definitely didn't do anything after my matches where now it's like a proper warm-up it's like a workout and then afterwards the cool down and the ice baths and there's just a lot more going into taking care of their bodies and 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 everything involved so I think yeah the longevity is definitely a lot better now um at the time no I could never have imagined playing into my into my late 30s uh, but I think if I was playing now I definitely would yeah, back then it was just so rare to have, you'd have a Martina or a Jimmy Connors, which would be like the, the very rare instance. Exactly. And kudos to them for doing it at that time as well. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask one last one. I don't know, Ben, you might have one too, but uh, you played against Steffi Graf a lot. Mm -hmm. You played mm -hmm. against Serena Williams as well. Mm -hmm. Who was, was tougher for you to face between those two great female tennis players? Oh, well, I got Serena early in her career. I mean, she had already, I think, won a major, but it was still, you know, soon where, you know, she made some mistakes here and there. Um, and I got her at the French. So I got her on a surface where I had a, a better chance um, to return the serve and get into rallies. Steffi was really tough for me. Um, she just had that combination of a lethal aggressive slice that kept the ball low. And then you had to hit up and then she'd run around and, and hit her forehand so hard. I remember getting tired in the warm up against Steffi. She <laughs> played at such a, a, such a faster pace than everybody else um, that you knew you were in for it, you know, immediately. So very different game styles. I mean, if you put Serena at her best and Steffi at the best, it's, it's a pretty tough, it's a tough call because then you got everything firing on, on all cylinders. I'll bet.
Yeah, just uh, lastly, I mean, we love hearing your, your commentary and perspective on the sport. And of course, that's one of the reasons we've had you on the podcast here. Uh, when when do you expect you'll you'll be next kind of on the road physically at a tournament? Well, what, are, what are the plans, I guess, for the rest of 2021 right now? Well, we're hoping, fingers crossed, ESPN is going to Wimbledon. Um, so we're excited about that. We're hoping that uh, the restrictions will be a little bit uh, less uh, strict and that, you know, the whole team will be there and we'll be, you know, calling the, the biggest tournament of the year. So we're, we're excited to, to, to be back on the road, you know, Australia, we covered it from Bristol, uh, which was nice, but it's always much better when, when you're at the, at the event live. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Mary Jo, thanks uh, so much for coming on Matchpoint Canada. We always uh, appreciate your insight in the game and of course your great career as well. No, thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. And there you have it, our interview with former player and tennis commentator for ESPN, Mary Jo Fernandez. So pleased to have her on the podcast. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can find us on Instagram under the name Matchpoint Canada. We're also on Facebook and YouTube. Well, Mike, we are halfway through the tournament. And what did you take through the first seven days of the French Open? Apart from we are not very good at predictions. Well, first of all, it might be seven days, but it feels like seven weeks to me, to be perfectly honest. This tournament has already had so much happen, both on the court and off the court. Way too much drama for my liking, i got to be honest with you. Uh, so there's a lot to pack into this episode and sort of dissect here. Uh, we'll, we'll leave what we got right and what we got wrong for maybe later in the episode, and there probably is more that we got wrong, but that's, you know, that's what happens when you make predictions, bold predictions. Um, but for me, I guess... You know, on the women's side, uh, it sure looks like uh, Sviantec is uh, looking like every bit the favorite and defending champion that we spoke about a week ago as she's been going through the tournament with relative ease. A couple of bagels, a couple of breadsticks in there for her opponents. So, you know, she's definitely living up to that hype on clay. Um, And then on the men's side, the big three are all still alive and kicking. I mean, two of the three of them, we pretty much knew they would be. Federer was, I guess, a bit of a, a wild card since he hasn't played on clay in so long and hasn't played very many tennis matches this year. So following him and his progress and seeing those big three continue to push through together, playing on the same day, which is still such an awkward sort of unknown thing to see, um, has been something else that I've been uh, following along. How about you? Yeah, certainly uh, kind of navigating big three match. Not not often do we have big three matches happening simultaneously where you can check in and like, okay, so Nadal's here right now against Nori and then Federer's playing someone else at the same time. It's certainly unusual. Um, so that has been something to get used to. And um, certainly the night matches that we have to talk about. I mean, Roger Federer, uh, he defeats Dominic Kupfer um, to get into that round of 16. But um the optics of this like dramatic, you know, high intensity third round match where they're going four sets, these tie breaks, and they're playing to complete an utter, utter silence. It is really, really quite eerie and bizarre. And, and it's odd that I feel that way because, you know, we, we went through tennis in 2020 where we didn't have any of these crowds. We didn't have any of these fans. But I think just the fact that you are within the regular atmosphere for a day session in Paris at Roland Garros. So you're again used to like, oh, this is like exciting uh, Grand Slam tennis with a rowdy, ruckus atmosphere and you're really into it. And then you build up to a night session. You normally think like night session, this is going to be primo tennis and excitement and just complete silence. You can hear a pin drop when these, these players are competing, um, which I feel like it, it takes away a, a little bit of the luster. So, so much credit, by the way, to Roger Federer digging in deep and, and winning at the age of 39 when he doesn't have a crowd to kind of lean on. Um, I, I think it was unfortunate, you know, you mentioned as well, like, uh, before we started talking, Carla Suarez Navarro. This was, of course, her return, her swan song returning from uh, injury um, and an illness, a serious illness to play at the French Open and uh, doesn't have the benefit of playing in front of a crowd that match against Sloane Stevens. And I actually wonder the result of that match. She was two points away from winning it in the second set. You wonder, would the dynamic of a crowd even change things? So the night sessions have been very eerie, unusual and uh that's due to uh the curfew restrictions in france right now yeah the transition is very weird going from you know full crowds to 
to no crowds. Uh, I mean, they don't have a choice. Their hands are tied. But Mm -hmm. I suppose they do certainly have a choice in how they do the scheduling. And so, as you just mentioned, you know, for Carlos Suarez Navarro coming back from cancer and and not just coming back from that, but also deciding this was going to be her last tournament before retirement. I I mean, what a terrible send off. What an awful way to to go out. There should have been a, a packed house or at least, you know, a very a sizable crowd there who would have rallied behind her for sure. And would that have been the difference? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe uh, Sloane Stevens would have used that as extra motivation, but it was a match that was worthy of and deserved to have, you know, and sort of shame on them for that scheduling decision. I feel like in that sense to talk about Federer for a moment. I mean, when you've got Nadal and Djokovic and him all playing on the same day, as we talked about earlier, someone's going to get the short end of the stick in terms of not having fans there as you spread those three out, hopefully. Yeah. And, uh, you can't have the world number one getting no crowd, I don't think. And you can't have the king of clay, Rafa Nadal, without a crowd. So of the three, if you had to put someone with no crowd, I guess it would be Federer. And I don't feel bad for him because he's always benefited from crowds that are so pro-Roger. That's true. <laughs> to the point of cheering double faults for his opponents, which I've never enjoyed that. I mean, to me, a true fan, you know, you don't cheer against the opponent's mistakes on, mm-hmm. a, on a serve anyways like that. Um so he's had plenty of times in his career where he's had that huge crowd advantage. I, I think it's almost like a, you know, leveling out for him. Sure. Give him a couple matches with no crowd to see how the rest of the world, you know, has to deal with, with playing tennis at times. Um, but he did get through it. And uh, you know, what do you think now he's going to be up against Berrettini, which uh, is still a, a day away as we're recording this. He's got a two and zero head to head against Berrettini, both straight set victories in uh, 2019. Never have they played on clay before. And uh, Berrettini's been looking pretty good lately. Yeah, Berrettini's been uh, looking fantastic. And, and I actually have concerns that is Roger Federer going to play this match? And it, it seemed crazy right. that he said this following a third round win that he basically has to look back, discuss with his team. They already feel like, well, we set out what we wanted to accomplish here at, at the French Open. We're trying to peak for Wimbledon. We got match play. Not only did you get match play, you got like a long three and a half hour, highly competitive match. And he was saying that was longer than uh, any time he'd actually spent on the practice court and the build up to this. But I, I would certainly hate the optics of Federer just pulling out of the round of 16 because he's played enough matches and got his preparation. That would be a pretty bad look. Uh, for for me, I think uh, for a grand slam. So I expect him to play. And uh, Berrettini is one of a few Italians playing playing great. And he had a quality clay court lead up, um, won that title in Serbia as well in Belgrade. I I'm actually going to lean Berrettini in this match. I think you you look how how hard Federer had to work to earn a four set win over Dominic Kepfer. I I think Berrettini will be able to hold serve even more comfortably. He has that huge forehand, which he can unload at any time. His slice plays well off the clay. Um, And what an opportunity for Berrettini to, to defeat one of the big three. He hasn't done it before. So if you know, the, the opportunities presented, presented itself here for the Italian, I think he really has to take it. Yeah, absolutely. This should be the time, if there's any, for him to get that first elusive win against Federer, I guess, uh, you know, considering their their past matches. That being said, I mean, I lean towards what you're saying, but it wouldn't surprise me either if Federer was able True. to pull it out, yep. as he is going to be getting, you would think, more and more comfortable playing matches on clay as he progresses through the tournament. He is Roger Federer. There's going to be that, you know, aspect of, of stress hanging over Berrettini as well, especially since he's never beat him before. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to come out and say it. I'm, I'm cheering for Roger in the same way that I'm cheering for Nova because I want to see that quarterfinal, you know, more than anything else at this point. I want to see those matches while we still have them. Is this Roger's last time at the French Open? Who knows? But it, it could very well be. Um, and if so, I'd like to see him go out against, yeah, one of his great rivals like, uh, like Novak. Yeah, and we would love to see, you know, a full house if that match were to happen in the quarterfinals. That one has to get a crowd. Uh, I'm sure I, I'm sure it will. Um, let's continue on the men's side for now as, as we're kind of delving into it. Roger Federer doing his work on the top half. Um, just discussing the big three as a whole, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic. They've both come through unscathed here, not dropping any sets. Who has looked maybe the best to you through the first week? Well, it's a toss-up between the two of them, eh? Because they're both on cruise control mode so far. Um, so I, I don't know if I can pick one over the other. But, but I can say that Nadal is looking everything like the man who has a 103-2 and two record at Roland Garros, 
with now 33 straight matches won and 32 straight sets won. I mean, it's going to be awfully difficult for anybody to, to knock this guy off as, you know, with every match that he progresses, that confidence, which is already sky high for a guy that's won the event as many times as he has, it's going to be awfully difficult for anyone, I think, to, to take Rafa out here. Yeah, an incredibly tall order. We, we do get an interesting rematch that took place in 2020. We kind of penciled it in ahead of the draw, so credit to us, we did get this one right. Uh, expecting Yannick Sinner and Rafael Nadal to show down again. They played in the quarterfinals last year in the fall, and I was just jogging my memory on that match, and I remember Sinner's played you know, such an unbelievable first set. He was attacking ruthlessly uh, on both wings, forehand, backhand, just trying to punish the ball every opportunity he could get, push Nadal on the back foot. And he does that for a set and over an hour and loses the first set 7-6. And I was like, doesn't this just kind of sum up Rafael Nadal? You, you produce your, on clay, you produce your best tennis that you can possibly put together in the world. You know, if you make a mistake, one or two points, the set is over. And then you feel like uh, after that, it, it's just like swimming upstream. It's near impossible. If you're behind Nadal on a clay court match, you have to win that first set. Um, I, I wonder if we're going to see a similar dynamic here again in this fourth round match. Uh, Yannick Sinner, I want to say he has a chance at an upset here, but the only reason I'm saying I feel like he doesn't is because I, I just can't see anybody beating Nadal apart from maybe Djokovic or maybe Tsitsipas. Yeah, and I mean, Sinner's already had a four-set match and a five-set match, and those were against two guys who were definitely not Rafael Nadal. Right. So, you know, yeah, I'd be pretty shocked at this stage of his career. Although, I, you know, great things are ahead. Everyone's already, you know, clearly, you know, anointed him as one of the next ones. Um, also, just to go back to what you said earlier about how we got that prediction right, I would say if we didn't have Nadal versus Sinner there, we should have <laughs> our podcast license revoked or something, yeah. because who the heck else are you going to pick in that part of the draw, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. Uh, as I mentioned, just the, the Italian tennis that we've seen, we have three Italians in that top half of the draw still. Novak Djokovic will face Lorenzo Musetti, who is another young phenom, just 19 years old. He's already made two career ATP semifinals. He was a successful junior. He's picked up big wins and, uh, you know, dominated Davi Goffin to open his tournament, got a big win over Marco Cecchinato in five sets, Cecchinato, a former semifinalist at the French Open. Uh, this is just another name to watch. I mean, we, we talk about potential rivalries of countries and sports thinking, you know, Canada, we're in such fantastic shape in terms of our tennis. We've mentioned Russia, uh, United States struggling a bit. Italy feels like the next nation, which could really take over. And it's funny how there's the, the ups and downs in tennis. And I mean, it, it takes time, clearly. Look at Sweden, who were so dominant in the 70s with Borg and then Vlander, and in the 80s with, with Edberg as well. And I mean, Sweden's been, you know, in such a drought, especially ever since um, uh, Soderling retired. So yep. you have these, these swings. Uh, so for the Italians, they must be excited. And you know who I think of when I see all these Italians doing well is Ubaldo the yes. Italian tennis journalist who's, uh, he's, I mean, he's got to be 70 plus at this point, I would imagine. And he entertains me in his press conference because he's got a unique style and uh, he must just absolutely be loving this because uh, yeah, there's some bright young Italian uh, talent out there for those fans to, uh, to really get excited about right now. Yeah, certainly. Um, the, the men's sign hasn't, Hasn't been short on upsets either, we should say. Dominic team, we knew he was out of sorts coming into this event. I still figured he could get a victory over Pablo Anduar, but credit to Anduar, who beats Roger Federer and Dominic team within a 10-day span. That feels like a near impossible feat for, for most tennis mortals, let alone a, a veteran of 35 years of age. So credit to Anduar for a great win there. The other big shock one to me... Um, and at the same time, he did have a brutal first round draw was Andre Rublev. We saw him play some awesome tennis on the clay leading up. We thought maybe he can make a run. Of course, he had that great win over Rafael Nadal at Monte Carlo. But Jan Leonard Struff, very difficult draw in the first round. And Struff defeats Rublev in five sets and is also into the round of 16. So I don't quite know what what went wrong for Rublev at the French Open here chalk it up to just like a bad draw in the first round maybe 
Yeah, I mean, let's give Struff some credit because that guy has been a Canadian killer, I feel like, over the last couple of years yep. as well. He's got numerous wins over Chapo and I feel like a couple other of our guys too. So, you know, there's no shame in going out to a player like that in the first round. That's probably one of those guys, you know, you can count on one hand or, or two hands that you, you wouldn't want to face early if you were a seated player. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, we should talk about the Canadians as well. Unfortunately, Denis Shapovalov didn't play. Milos Raonic, Vashik Pospisil didn't play on the men's side. And, you know, we tempered our expectations with Felix Ojealiasim, understandably, going into the tournament, but he was still seeded 20th. So we figured surely maybe we could see a couple of match wins. Then he gets a draw of a veteran, Andrea Seppi, 37 years of age, hadn't played much tennis coming in you know, was struggling on the challenger circuit, losing a handful of matches. And, um, you know, Felix goes out in the first round and four sets to Seppi. And I, I just feel like he's a bit lost mentally on the court right now. Yeah, the um, the union between him and Tony Nadal clearly has not produced um, immediate dividend. No. I, I know when that union was first announced and you and I spoke about it, I said, even if Felix doesn't have great clay court results this year, Perhaps there's things he can take from this association that down the road he'll be able to draw on and, and lessons he'll be able to learn. I guess that's what you got to kind of hope for at this point because the clay court season was nothing short of, I don't want to be too dramatic here, but kind of disastrous for Felix. Yeah. Um, overall, you know, nothing like what he's shown and produced on clay in the past, albeit at maybe some smaller tournaments. But uh, yeah, really just didn't transpire for him. And, and while Seppi is a, a veteran, a wily veteran player, and he's been around for some time. I mean, I remember him playing against Agassi in one of Agassi's last tournaments at Wimbledon. Um, that's a match that Felix should be winning and finding ways to win or, my goodness, at least push that to five sets. So Felix is probably pretty happy at this point that the clay court season is over. I don't know if that relationship with Tony Nadal continues for the rest of the year or if that's just a clay court association. Um, I'm not really sure if there's going to be grass court tips coming from Tony, Uncle Tony, but... But who knows? Um, and for Felix, he's just got to, you know, shake it off and forward to the grass court season and, and hope that better things are ahead for him because he's stuck in a real rut right now. Yeah, yeah, he certainly needs maybe maybe a mental reset uh, as well. And I was thinking back to the previous tournament in Lyon. He loses a tight three-setter to Lorenzo Musetti, who, of course, is playing amazing tennis. That was 7-5 in the third. Okay, you think tough loss against a tough player but this uh this round one loss felt felt like a certain certainly a setback so a reset mentally maybe physically as well and and maybe better things on the grass are ahead uh before we talk about the women's side i want to talk about a, a press issue that transpired and this has been a guest on our podcast in the past jonathan pinfield tweets by jp he goes by on twitter and uh Kind of famous on Twitter for his colorful questions asked of players at the French Open. He's had credentials in the past here, and we've discussed that. Uh, and he had his press pass revoked for a day after he tried to kind of work a lighthearted joke with uh, Sasha Zverev uh, after one press conference, pretending he was in a supermarket. And then Roland Garros uh, stripped him of his press pass. They gave it back after he apologized. What what were your thoughts on this whole fiasco that took part for uh, the better part of a day? And we feel like we've had so many press issues and, and media topics of discussion over the past week at Roland Garros. This felt kind of ridiculous to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it feels ridiculous to us probably, Ben, because we know him so well. Um, mm -hmm. And we've talked to him so many times in the past. And we know he's a good-natured guy. We we know that his quirky questions come from a good place. He's well-intentioned. He's not trying to stir anything up in press. It's just him. It's just his approach. And more often than not, his approach hits the mark. And uh, he elicits some really great responses from the players. They let their guard down. They're more comfortable. They're having some laughs. Not that press is supposed to be about, you know, comedy hour. But if you get a player who's at ease, they're going to answer your questions, you know, and show a lot more of their personality, which I think is, is really great for us in the press and for fans as well who read and consume our content. Um, he go a little too far this time. Maybe it was a little bit too cute. I mean, I think he was poking fun at, at Zverev, who was a little bit late getting to the court for one of his matches. And here's, uh, you know, Jonathan saying, oh, I'm still at the supermarket. I'm late for press. Sorry. And just to get things started on that kind of a foot, he's also got a, a rapport we know with uh, Sasha Zverev that's different than most reporters. And I think he was trying to tap into that prior history and relationship that he has with him. And maybe the, you know, French 
Tennis Federation wasn't aware of that. He did apologize, he wrote a lengthy email to them apologizing. They took that at face value and reinstated him. I can see how it might have ruffled some people's feathers. They might see that as unprofessional and a bit of a stretch. But to me, knowing the guy and knowing what his questions often get out of press and trying to make that sometimes sort of boring environment a little more entertaining, I'm all for it. And I think most players would be too. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you there. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. Uh, we, we spoke at length uh, in our Roland Garros preview about issues surrounding Naomi Osaka opting out of press conferences and doing post-match media conferences. And that was the hot button topic uh, going into the French Open. And I, I almost think in hindsight, maybe we spoke about it a little too much. Like, why was this the prevailing issue that everybody wanted to talk about? But um, now looking back, uh, it, it is such a shame because all the four Grand Slams, they got together and issued a statement. And I think they just handled this so poorly. They essentially threatened Osaka with possible uh, fines, suspension, or even expulsion from the tournament if she... Uh, backed out of her media availabilities uh, further and further after not doing so in the first round. Osaka responds by pulling out of the tournament. Um, a handling of mental health like this in 2021 just seems optics-wise terrible, archaic. I, I mean, what do you what do you make of it? I, I mean, it was clear she, even if you didn't love the way she worded her first sentence, we were discussing a player who was citing mental health issues for not wanting to do post-match media conferences. And I also don't like this narrative that's been circling around social media to suggest like it's somehow like such a, a vital part of the game as if like matches aren't really decided on the court. Uh, we've had other players opt out of these things in the past for various reasons. So this was just... I think a disaster start to finish. And now we don't know when Naomi Osaka is going to be back playing again. Yeah. Shame on them and shame on many people in the media and certainly some tennis fans on social media for the way that they had to go over the top on their reactions. Uh, I mean, look, I, whether you agree or disagree, totally cool. I don't need everyone to the same way I do. I lean more towards the side of supporting someone and having some empathy for someone who's having some mental health struggles. Um, but if you don't agree with it, I can understand why. But then there was the fine that was put in place, and that's the penalty. If she chooses not to do press, there's going to be a fine. She's going to pay it. Life goes on. Leave it yep. at that. Why do you have to take someone when they're down? Why do you have to make them feel worse? Why do you have to suggest perhaps banning them from future tournaments? Uh, she never said she wasn't going to speak at future tournaments. So why even go there? Mm -hmm. Right. And it shows such a lack of understanding of someone who's having any mental health challenges that any statements now that the uh, Grand Slams have put out about how we want to work with Naomi and, and all this, it just seems so hypocritical and so, so empty. And, uh, you know, I've never blocked and unfollowed so many people on Twitter in my 10 plus years on this app as I have this past week, because the length that some people are going to, to really, you know, take it to Naomi over this decision and then her decision to withdraw, which again comes from a good place. She's trying to, you know, decrease the level of distraction. And, and I'm sure this wasn't good for her mental health either, having people overreact to the way that they have. So poorly handled from start to finish. I hope she's back on the court soon. Uh, I'd love to see her back in again soon. And as we mentioned in the first uh, episode we had on this topic, let's just start talking about ways that we can make this uh, an easier process. Not an easy process. Because it is, you know, press and there's going to be tough questions. But how can we make the process easier for those that struggle in this kind of environment? And that, I think, is where the conversation should be going to instead of, you know, this back and forth and, and this negative shaming that's been happening instead. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, credit to the journalists who have kind of handled this story with the the right amount of nuance. And, uh, you, you know, most most of our journalists, I think, handled it the right way. But I was kind of rolling my eyes at, at some of the media in the tennis media, making Naomi Osaka's issue about themselves, thinking like, why is she bashing on us? And I never really felt, even from reading her first statement, which she acknowledged later, maybe she didn't word or express the perfect way, that it, it never felt necessarily personal to the media. Um, you know, we're, we're put in that environment. Not all media love to enter these press conferences and ask questions too, but it's, it's the only access you get to players uh, to maybe grab your quote for a story or whatever it might be. Uh, but it, it never felt personal to the media, what she was saying. She acknowledged in her second statement, having long, 
long bouts of a history of depression since 2018. So that was the issue at large. And uh, I, I hope um, this can be resolved and that we can have her back at Wimbledon. I know uh, the all the all England club issued a statement supporting her. And uh, that was the right statement came too late. At least you kind of got it right. And uh, yeah, for as for the French Tennis Federation, this was handled very poorly, even in the aftermath um, where their president just made a stock statement and wouldn't field any questions. So that, yeah, yeah, that was also a questions. bad look. Yeah. So, so what is the you... point holding a press conference is press conference and then not taking questions in fact that's what that's what osaka should do actually next time just go in here's my statement about the match and leave because that's no basically questions. what the french french tennis federation did so yeah they uh, certainly bungled that one up now look hey with naomi out of the draw the number two seed uh out of the draw and with bianca andrescu out of the draw and let's talk about that too perhaps a little bit things have really opened up in that section of the the women's field haven't they yeah, yeah. Incredible right now that we only have uh, three of the top 10 seeds remaining. And yeah, look, we didn't discuss Serena Williams much at all on our first episode, viewing her as a contender. But uh, what an opportunity now. Uh, seventh seed here and just the bottom half of that draw is completely blown up. Um, just to talk about Bianca briefly, I wish she could, you know get into some of these matches that would be a little more straightforward. This loss to Tamara Zadoncek was uh, probably a bit frustrating because if you watch the first 10 to 15 minutes of it, you would think Bianca is cruising to a comfortable straight sets victory. Instead, she gets uh, finds herself in a long-winded, difficult three-set match, and it, it felt like a, a match where had she kind of taken over the first set, she was up three love and had points to go up for four love. Maybe she wins the first set six, two and kind of locks things down and is into the second round. But as uh, a Sek is a scrappy player, she has, hits a good backhand defends well. And uh, Bianca, you know, I actually had a friend who was in Paris watching this match. He noted that she seemed to struggle a lot with the wind, particularly on her serve. So that seemed to play a factor. Uh, and it was just unfortunate that she couldn't have a straightforward victory because I think there was an opportunity in this draw, but uh, an early exit for a Canadian on the women's side as well. And the more matches she could have got, you know, in, in hindsight, probably would have helped her too. Yes. I mean, I know she's been incredibly good at returning to the court with lengthy absences and, and performing at a high level. But this is also on a surface that she hasn't barely played on really in the last two years. So that would have made it even more challenging, I feel, for her. And, you know, on the you know, silver lining, perhaps, is look, Zidansek is still going strong at the time that we're recording this. Yep. She's about to face uh, 2013 Rogers Cup finalist, uh, Serana Sustea um of uh, of romania so she's still going having a good run it's not like you know bianca lost to a player that then went out in straight sets in the next round where we would have lamented even more her opportunity i suppose and you know to talk about serena for a moment you look at what she's got in front of her again at the time we're recording here rebekina pavlyochenkova and then maybe but or to get to the finals uh and no disrespect to any of those players yeah. but those aren't the names that you would expect that serena might have to face in the quarters and semis to get to uh to the ultimate match here yeah no it's a uh pretty astonishing how much the draws opened up on that bottom half uh arena sabalenka that was a shock to me that pavlochenkova overcame her in three sets and then followed it up with a, a great win over victoria azarenka but yeah the the two names beyond that who are really standing out to me still there are of course our french open finalists from last year Igus biontech and sophia kennan who uh just had a a tough three set win herself um defeating jessica pagula the american uh, six four in the third so some top names there sloan stevens having this sudden resurgence uh wasn't really expecting that to happen here at the french open but uh i feel like she's been coming around she seemed to gain momentum from that three set win over carla suarez navarro we know how dangerous she is when she's playing her best tennis let's look back maybe just at a few of the picks that we had that went right and went wrong and i'll just start by saying i did have arena sabalenka winning this tournament so that was horribly wrong <laughs> Well, you did get one right, though, because you were a big Shikori supporter, and I, I laughed at you, Ben, and I apologize. I, <laughs> Thank I you. Border, I borderline bullied you on your pick, and uh, so far, so good for Nishikori, who's lining up against Berov in a, a match that has five sets written all over it, eh? 
Yeah, and Kaney Shikori, 26-7 and seven career-wise in five-set matches. Uh, he laughed to the press where uh, after uh, winning one five-set match, he insisted, I don't try and play five sets. I promise you, it just seems to happen. Uh, but when he does go to that fifth set, he often wins. So uh, good for him getting to the round of 16. Um, as for your picks, anything that has fallen through badly? I mean, I thought Fanini would not necessarily have a deep run, but be a guy that could ruffle some feathers and uh, and he ended up going out at least Murdens went out as well mm-hmm. uh we both talked about uh, paula bedosa and she's yes. doing well yeah so that's something that's uh, that's working in our favor and i did say that i expected federer to uh you know quite potentially make week two and so uh i guess i got that one i don't know if that's that big of a stretch but given his lack of match play on clay and his own sort of downplaying of his chances uh, I think he has in some way exceeded people's expectations here. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I believe I also took uh, Maria Sakari fairly far in this tournament. And we, in a way, caught a break that we both had Sviantek defeating Barty in uh, what we perceived to be a difficult kind of fourth round match. And uh, Barty, unfortunately, out with a, a hip injury to, to Magda Lynette, which was unfortunate in the second round. And uh, one other thing that's just coming to mind now is if you'd asked me at the start of the event, which Canadian I thought would go furthest, I would have picked, you know, there was slim pickings really with so many not playing in the event and with Bianca being a question mark. I would have picked Gabby Dabrowski to go far in doubles. Unfortunately, she went out early in the mixed doubles uh, event. And uh, and she also just lost uh, while we were mid-recording here in women's doubles with Leila Fernandez as her partner. Uh, They went down to the number two seeds of Krejcikova and Siniakova. And it seems like Gabby's always up against a tough Czech duo. And that happened once again here, uh, you know, relatively early in the tournament. So her French Open is over. Fingers crossed that Sharon Fishman, who's still alive in doubles and has been playing terrific this yeah. year with the title in Rome. Uh, hopefully she can keep things going for, uh, for the Maple Leaf here. Yeah, her and uh, Juliana Almos on an incredible run right now. I believe they won maybe nine matches in a row to this point. So uh, they are into the third round of the French Open playing some terrific tennis. We'll be following them closely. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. Must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief.